All right, welcome to America This Week. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Walter Kern. So this was the 4th of July, Walter. Did you have a good 4th of July? I had a great 4th of July. I live in the equivalent of North Pole at Christmas, only for the 4th of July. Um, Livingston, Montana has a rodeo, a big parade, drunken sort of uh, New Orleans-style drinking on the streets, and uh, a lot of rodeo cowboys in town signing ladies' arms with magic markers. So uh, it was a, a bacchanal, as it usually is, and because it consumed most of the weekend and the first part of the week, it really got rolling. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did not have that experience. I was still sick most of the week. But nonetheless, a very interesting holiday this week because we usually don't get news on July 4th. Like you, you will sometimes get news on Christmas Eve, like if a president wants to wants to pardon somebody unpopular. Um, Thanksgiving, still more rare, it seems to me. But the 4th of July, can you remember news dropping on the 4th of July ever? No, I can't. And what was this news, Matt? So this news was a ruling in the Missouri v. Uh, Biden internet censorship case, which, if you haven't been following it, you know, is, is sort of the big uh, lawsuit against what the attorneys general in this case, which they're from uh, Louisiana and from Missouri, they call the censorship enterprise. It's very similar to what we describe in the Twitter files and what Schellenberger calls the censorship industrial complex. We can get into all that in a minute, but basically they sued everybody. They sued a whole gaggle of federal agencies, essentially for violations of First Amendment uh, rights. And somewhat surprisingly, in the middle of the suit, before anything's been adjudicated, the judge in the suit, Terry Doughty, um, handed down a ruling basically enjoining almost everybody almost all of the, the defendants in the case from engaging in a long list of behaviors. And I think it's worth sort of reading some, what, what some of those are uh, since uh, there have been, there's been so much laughing about the idea that some of these things are bad or, you know, may violate the law or that, that sort of thing. That sound right, Walter? Should I read a couple of these? Yeah, let's hear it, because not only has there been um, a dispute over whether they're bad, there was an earlier denial that they ever even happened. So, uh, right. Right. This, this, uh, this pretty much lays to rest the idea that this is all a, a dream. Right. So, so the, the, the judge names all of these people, there are people in the White House, there are people who are part of the White House COVID-19 response team, there are people from CISA, um, mm -hmm. including Jen Easterly, the director of CISA. Uh, there's Samantha Vinograd, who is a uh, national security official at DHS, uh, the Department of State, the Global Engagement Center, which of course was a, a character that you know, most people didn't know about, but suddenly we had to learn a lot about in the Twitter files. So they are, according to the judge, hereby enjoined and restrained from taking the following actions as to social media companies. And he lists 10 things, but I'll just I'll just list a few. One, 
mm-hmm. meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content uh, containing protected free speech posted on social media platforms. Two, specifically flagging content or posts on social media uh, platforms and or forwarding such to social media companies for the same purpose. Uh, three, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner social media companies to change their guidelines uh, for removing speech. Uh, then there's collaborating, coordinating, partnering, switchboarding, and or jointly working with the Election Integrity Partnership, the Virality Project, the Stanford Internet Observatory, or any like project or group for the purpose of, again, the same thing, removal of speech. And then eventually there's one uh, that basically uh, enjoins them from pressuring or threatening uh, to regulate these companies uh, in, in response. Um, in exchange for for uh, action on speech, so a very sweeping ruling, which has already had an effect. The, the State Department has already stopped its uh, scheduled meetings with some of these companies. What was your first reaction to all this, Walter? Well, first of all, I I think America and that large portion of it that doesn't follow these things um, would be surprised to learn the depth. Uh, of the uh, coercion that's been revealed here. I mean, it included the Census Bureau. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it seemed that anybody could make a phone call or have a meeting with uh, the, the, the poobahs of social media and get stuff taken off, flagged, etc. Because the government denied it ever did this at all, that it ever pressured anyone. It's a little shocking to not only realize they lied about that, but that they lied about something that was so sweeping, so all-encompassing, so constant. Um, it's it's one thing to deceive over uh, uh, you know a matter of fact or a small point, but to deceive over what is just manifestly a standard practice or be- has become a standard practice is 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 startling um i also you know looking at this ruling was taken by the range of topics that were specifically mentioned um it was the hunter biden laptop but it was also covid and it was also uh, the origins of covid and the vaccines produced in response to covid and also election uh quote denial or discussions about imperfections in mail-in voting and so on so was it national security that binds these all together well what does the hunter biden laptop have to do with national security what do vaccines have to do with it really it doesn't seem that there is anything really when you take these examples together that uh they can't make a phone call and have stopped and it's also clear that they there was no mechanism for making them prove anything was disinformation and without this ruling and without this pushback i don't think there ever would be it would just be an open channel uh for the suppression of 
whatever an administration wanted to suppress. In writing about this, I, I interviewed one of the plaintiffs. Uh, they had a, a number of plaintiffs, only one of which I, I would characterize as like a hardcore conservative, and that was uh, Jim Hoff, the guy from the Gateway Pundit. The rest of them, you know, that's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. There's another doctor named uh, Aaron Hariati, or Cariati, I think Cariati, is how, how you pronounce yeah. it. Cariati, yeah. Um, and uh, I interviewed him, and he, he had written a piece about this where, for Tablet, where he talked about his surprise to find out how many things the government um, was interested in regulating, how many different types of topics um, they wanted to get their fingers in. And he talked about that being everything from gender ideology to abortion to monetary policy to war in Ukraine and many other things. And he had this quote, which I thought was really interesting. He, he said, take any contentious issue in American public life, and it just seems like the federal government, once they got this machinery rolling, thought, okay, we can combat, quote, unquote, misinformation on all kinds of things. And that's the impression that you get when you read the full ruling uh, by the judge in this case. It's a 155-page document. And you see that it goes all over the place. It's everything from, you know, the Census Bureau obviously to COVID issues, um, you know, to election misinformation, to satire, to things that personally upset the Biden family, to all kinds of crazy stuff. And this is exactly what sort of free speech advocates were worrying about all, the whole time, which is that, you know, once you open that door uh, and allow them a little bit of leeway to start affecting these things, um, it, why would they stop at one thing? Why, why would it just be well, well they, they haven't stopped. They didn't stop. Uh, I'm not sure if there was any central clearinghouse for these requests. There doesn't seem to be anybody who could get the phone numbers and represent themselves as powerful in the government uh, seemed to be able to uh, put the arm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, etc. I think that the scope of it is pretty stunning, even for people like you and I who have followed these stories closely. Um, and I'm just going to lay it down that this practice represented the absolute death of free speech on, on social media. They've only been rolling a few years with these uh, disinformation centers and these bureaucratic uh, committees and so on. And they already got their hands into every subject known to man. Uh, th they were going to spread out without uh, any obstacles, you know, barring this kind of ruling. And uh, there was really no way to imagine where they'd stop. For, for somebody like me to be philosophical about the ruling, the thing that stunned me the most was the government's contention repeated in the ruling that your thoughts, your comments on social media represent something called cognitive infrastructure. <laughs> right. Walter, what, what is cognitive infrastructure? You and I, and probably almost 99% of the people who listen to this podcast, thought that infrastructure was something like bridges, roads, um, maybe hospitals, 
police department. It seemed like it was stuff that was sturdy, rather expensive, built to last, and which facilitated the sort of flow of, of social energy. But we never thought of it as transient, evanescent, um, and sort of floating in the, in the ether like thought or words. Um, in fact, I don't think there could be a stronger misnomer than to call thought infrastructure. It may be, in fact, the very opposite. You know, our skulls might be construed as infrastru infrastructure, but what goes on inside them uh, is rather more fluid than we usually think of as infrastructure. So this incredible miscarriage of English uh, was used to justify the idea that just as we must repair bridges and we must, um, you know, maintain roads, we must repair and maintain the thoughts of the American public. He, you know, sometimes they out Orwell, Orwell. He, he was pretty good. He was pretty great, in fact. But, you know, he had his limits. And... Uh, it, imaginative limits, yeah, right? Yeah, he had his imaginative <laughs> limits. And, and, and it took some kind of very American uh, temperament to equate thinking with bridges. I, I mean, I guess words can be used as anything. They're somewhat plastic. Uh, but, but that was a wild one. And, and, and not only is it infrastructure, it's critical infrastructure. In other words, should it fail, sort of like uh, that bridge uh, in Philadelphia over a freeway, I don't know, the traffic of right uh, thinking and proper sentiment in America might grind to a halt. Um, and, uh, you know, the urgency with which we must police it is part of that phrase. And suddenly this tool is taken away from them, temporarily at least. I don't know if they're going to find a workaround, if they can go through, you know, other uh, agents or, or, or cutouts to accomplish what they have been. But the judge seemed, uh, you know, aware of that technique and, and, and out to block it. So America right now, there are no tolls on the bridges. Uh, there's no speed limit on the roads. Your cognitive infrastructure is your own again and uh, not the government's. So uh, make the most of it. We may have only a couple of weeks here because uh, the Biden administration has quickly filed an appeal um, so that they can do all this again and resume their uh, patching of the potholes in our souls and minds. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. They came up with the metaphor, not me. I mean, I, 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 know. I think we should go as far with it as we can since they, uh, they, they made the rules. What's really funny is it's a double misuse of the infrastructure concept because what they did first is they identified um malinformation misinformation dis disinformation uh as part of the remit for protecting critical infrastructure and then secondarily they came up with this concept of cognitive infrastructure right so first first they came up with the idea that sort of wrong information um, is a threat to the critical infrastructure of the country. 
And then they came up with the idea of, you know, sort of the thoughts that, that happen in our heads are critical infrastructure. So it's crazy on multiple levels. By their definition, even um, ignorance of the right things is critical infrastructure, meaning we weren't supposed to know about the Hunter Biden laptop. We weren't supposed to discuss it at all. We certainly weren't supposed to know about its contents. So our ignorance, that, that as I say, pothole in our brain in which it would have gone um, also was important. So not only do they have to uh, keep us from thinking wrongly, they have to keep us in some cases from thinking at all, um, especially if it's about vaccines, the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, mail-in voting, and on and on and on. Um, how, any, how any of this can be construed as the interests of the U.S. government itself, the federal government itself, is uh, impossible to imagine because uh, these all seem to be Democratic Party interests and not even Democratic Party interests generally, but interests of one candidate uh, in, in most cases. Yet the, you, the response to this was, you know, it was every bit as overwrought um, and, you know, full of hysterical, psychogenic, uh, you know, craziness as you can possibly imagine. Everybody was in total lockstep. The New York Times, when it tweeted about this, you know, in the tweet, it, uh, it talked about how this is going, going to undermine you know, cur could curtail efforts to combat false and misleading narratives or um, I th actually, I think the tweet said misinformation, but, you know, that was in the lead of their piece as well. Then uh, the Washington Post, Washington Post was unbelievable in its dishonesty about this. I just want to read a paragraph. The Donald Trump appointed judges move could undo years of efforts to enhance coordination between the government and social media companies for more than a decade. The federal government has attempted to work with social media companies to address criminal activity, including child sexual abuse images and terrorism. Now, why is that? Why is that dishonest? Well, uh, here's the ruling. Here's here, here's a couple of lines from the ruling at the end uh, where the judge talks about what is not covered in this ruling. Number one informing social media companies of postings involving criminal activity or criminal conspiracies, uh, notifying social media companies of national security threats. Uh, let's see, uh, communicating with social media companies about deleting, removing, suppressing, or reducing posts on social media platforms that are not protected free speech. So he specifically says that this doesn't cover crime. It doesn't cover child sexual abuse or terrorism or any of that stuff. It just covers protected free speech. Uh, and yet the Washington Post just sort of brazenly implies uh, that this is going to roll back progress on, you know, the, the cooperation leading to the capture of child sexual predators. Does it get any more dishonest than that, media-wise? I, 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 I can't remember anything like that. It, there was one uh, guy who came out to criticize the ruling, 
um, who heads a, a First Amendment center at Columbia University. Um, if there was ever a ruling that set out to protect the First Amendment, it was this one. But this guy, who, whose job is supposedly to defend freedom of speech, saw it in an interestingly different way. He, he saw this as restraining the free speech of the government to tell people what to do in order to restrain your free speech. In other words, you know, what, what an ingenious uh, piece of sophistry this was. He's telling you that this is all about restraining uh, the Fed's free speech when they go and tell people to restrain at scale your free speech. And uh, it's as though this disinformation notion has corrupted every institution that we formerly thought of as um, arising from the First Amendment. Here we see it corrupting academia, as it has across the board, because a lot of these uh, centers for disinformation are located within universities, supposedly bastions of, uh, of thought and expression and communication and, and uh, ideas. Newspapers who wouldn't exist without the First Amendment in the form they do, um, they would be, uh, you know, direct trumpets uh, of, of government, uh, seem to be biting the hand that feeds them in a way I, 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 I would never really have anticipated even a few years ago. Um, and and uh, I wonder what it is about the censorship of normal people that newspapers find so um, pleasant. I guess they have to censor themselves in the beginning. Uh, they, they worry about putting out stories that upset people, and they don't see why we shouldn't have to share their worry. You know, the New York Times really has to think twice if it's going to divulge that there's a laptop containing all of this uh, potential financial malfeasance and pornographic uh, adventures by the president's son. But we don't. And I think they're jealous. They have considerations in the way they comport themselves around power that individuals don't and shouldn't. Um, if they want to play the game of uh, sitting at the big table and the price of being in that game is pleasing the powers that be, they should be able to do it. But why Pam from Paducah should have to, I don't know. Yeah, the rallying around sort of opposition to free speech, opposition to the traditional interpretation of the, the First Amendment and, you know, this has been a battle that Americans have been having, an argument that we've been having for a long time in this country, right? I mean, this is not a new thing going back to the Alien and Sedition Acts. And then, then there's the, you know, the Palmer raids in the, in, in, uh, during World War I, uh, the rulings about criminal syndicalism, which allowed, you know, these sort of mass arrests of people for uh, having certain views, right? So that, that led to, anti-war protesters and labor union organizers and all kinds of people being arrested. Then we had the clear and present danger standard. Um, 
And it's it, there's always been this tension between the idea that the, the government uh, exercising its ability to decide what is and is not appropriate speech, uh, that we have to weigh that against the danger of giving somebody, allowing somebody to say something crazy or wrong or, or, or inciting uh, or whatever it is. And, you know, the last hundred, hundred you know, 120 years of American history, we've been moving basically in the same direction legally, which is judges have consistently said that, you know, the bar for government intervention in speech has to be incredibly high. I mean, look at Brandon, Brandenburg v. Ohio. Here you had William Douglas, like the ultimate liberal, uh, stepping in there to defend the speech rights of a KKK leader uh, and saying that, no, we can't, we can't get involved unless it's incitement to imminent lawless action. Like they, they, they intentionally made it that high. Yeah. Uh, and the, it's, a, it's as if all of these people who are writing about this topic have decided to have collective amnesia about all this history as if we never talked about this before. And, you know, one of the things that, that Dowdy is talking about is this concept of significant encouragement, which is a test that's, you know, been uh, popped up in a number of different court cases. Here's a line from a, a case that I found. I think it's uh, Lee versus Macon County Board of Education. It's axiomatic that a state may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to, to accomplish what it is constitutionally forbidden to, to accomplish. So the idea of like getting a private actor to do what the government isn't allowed to do, they're not allowed to do that, right? And so all of this legal history, which I think up until a decade ago would have been uncontroversial among American liberals anyway. It, not, not, only un, un, not only would it be uncontroversial among American liberals, if I... Unless I've been replaced by an alien and my memory is completely false, uh, I lived through, having been born in 1962, chapter after chapter of liberal defiance uh, uh, against speech codes and codes of expression. I, I saw uh, Tipper Gore try to put uh, warning labels on records um, and, you know, be roundly uh, lambasted but by, by liberals uh, i saw the anti-war movement we, we, we started to interrupt we made heroes out of frank zappa and d snyder because of that remember that <laughs> yes exactly uh where are, you know well frank's gone uh, i don't think d's standing up uh, for free speech these days but i hope he is somewhere um but but you know we had the anti-war movement uh w which uh you know, itself was suppressed and uh, opposed in all kinds of ways. But to think now that our most liberal newspapers and, uh, and universities can agree on, it seems, only one thing, and that's that you, the bearer of cognitive in infrastructure, sitting at your phone, are the biggest threat to what? Democracy that they can imagine. And here, when some uh, government um, channel to these social media companies is interrupted, they suddenly stand up in unison 
and cry wolf. I'm just going to continue to be the liberal that I was when I was uh, asked to be outraged by the other things and be even more outraged by this. Because these acts of censorship didn't even... Yeah, they didn't even posit that there was a conspiracy or that there was imminent danger. In, in many case, cases, they were uh, censoring individuals who were speaking only to a few other individuals on, uh, on, on social media. Um, they, never, they, they never tried to prove a huge conspiracy. They never tried to prove that there were anarchist cells, you know, pushing violence. Uh, they censored on the basis of content, not intentions. And uh, the fact is that the world won't fall apart, I submit, uh, now that this has been abrogated. My feelings about the judge's exceptions is that they were a little broad for me, because I'm mm -hmm. a bit of an absolutist on this issue. And because he made an exception for national security, I think that a government that can declare your thoughts cognitive infrastructure can easily declare almost anything you say to be somehow touching on national security. Um, and, and I think they're going to try to drive some trucks through this language uh, of his, depending on how long this preliminary injunction stands, um, that I'm not sure about right now. Well, let's talk about that because that's interesting, right? It's going to be appealed. Let's say they lose at the appeal. Let's say it's like if you're hearing this message, you're listening to the free version of America This Week. To hear the full version, please subscribe at www.racket.news.